parents told him he'd never get anywhere playing video games for a living. Now he's here. It's Behind the Line Radio with your host, Kinetic. And it starts now. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Behind the Line Radio, a podcast about the making of video games, the business of video games, and the people of the video games industry. I'm your host, Kinetic, a.k.a. Nick, and joining me today is Enthusiac's own Judge Greg, heavyweight champion of the Enthusiac's Wrestle Gaming Championship. How are you doing today, Greg? Good. Let it go. Let it go. Can't hold it back anymore. You know, All right, I was trying for something different. I don't think that worked. <laughs> you know, I've still never seen that movie. Uh, I've uh, <laughs> funny, funny story actually. Um, so my my four year old is now to the point where she's feels brave enough to watch through the scary parts. So uh, I I have only just recently seen that movie in its entirety because there was a good five minutes in the middle of that movie that I just had never seen before. <laughs> I know it gets to that part and then it's scary and then I got to fast forward past it. So. Uh, all the all the stuff with the big giant angry marshmallow uh, snowman, who's a big like monster. A- anytime anytime he was on the screen, I would have to fast forward it. So I never used to see those scenes. So I've only just now figured out like a really good chunk of the story. because <laughs> a lot of stuff happens in those scenes. Those are very pivotal scenes for the for the narrative, and I kind of have to catch up later. <laughs> it's a bit like the joke. Did you know? That there's a chapter in Finding Nemo before Chapter Two. <laughs> Anyhow, so uh, it's been a while since we've had a podcast. Although mm-hmm. I thought that was okay. I mean, the last one I had, the last guest I had, I thought was really interesting and enlightening. That was actually one of the most uh, enlightening podcasts I ever recorded. And then uh, sort of a special episode, which was the conclusion of the Killer Seven playthrough and analysis. Right. I feel fine letting those breathe, and a little bit like uh, you, Greg, and, and uh, GWB, Nick, Gamers Without Borders, Nick, will say, you know, life can kind of come at you, so. <laughs> yeah, and uh, one of the things that we always kind of talk about on that podcast is that when when you're doing this as a hobby, you know, it's not like I'm pulling a paycheck, this is, this is something that I'd have to devote time and money to, so when life is coming at you and you need to, like, sort of let go of something to kind of ease the burden... Uh, this is this is one of the first things that you let go of. Yeah, and and it's fine. It's fine. Yeah, it's fine. <laughs> I mean, honestly, it's 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 not like we have a Patreon or anything where people are, are clamoring to try to get content or anything. This is all free. <laughs> we're just we're just putting it out there and saying, hey, come check it out if you want. And I and, hope you find it interesting. Yeah, I mean, as as it is, I mean, I am I'm behind on Hero Talks right now, and I don't even know where I'm going to find the time to do anymore, but. Yeah, so that's just that's just life gets in the way. But you know what? You're not paying for any of this, so <laughs> so you're welcome. <laughs> but I did want to get this one in before uh, GDC, which is this coming week. So mm-hmm. thank you, Greg, for helping me make that happen. No problem. So the one thing that I really wanted to talk about, and again, thank you, Greg, for coming on to talk about this. Uh, a while ago, and I'm a little embarrassed at how long it's taken me to talk about this in its entirety. Uh, Extra Credits, the YouTube series Extra Credits, which I think is very interesting and very worth checking out, finally had an episode talking about video game QA. And the way I kind of put it is they're about 80% right. 
which seems to be about right because uh, I looked into the guy who they mentioned wrote the uh, uh, the script for them, and he's got about two thirds the experience I have. So that yeah, that sounds about right. <laughs> yeah, that works. I mean, I've just just to kind of give your listeners some background. So I I am in the software QA business, and I have been doing it for quite a few years now. Um, but I work primarily in the the non-gaming market. I, I do have some gaming pedigree to me, but for by and large, the overwhelming majority of my work is on uh, either uh, commercial or contract software. So I've what I found is that if, if you look at it through that lens, it's a, a lot of it was kind of, yeah, it, <laughs> it, it sorry, it through the lens of a, of a contract software, it's even less right. Probably about 25 to 40% is actually accurate. And some of it, I'm just shaking my head and saying, no, 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 no. <laughs> okay, this is, then this is going to be probably more interesting than I'd even hoped for. Because, yeah. I mean, when, when I look through it, I mean, first of all, it, a lot of the topics they go into strike me as a bit of reflecting kind of the nature of the place where he came from. Uh, oh, I'm going to be a total heel now and not remember his name. Ooh, and I was just <laughs> reviewing it. You know what? I'm Dave. His name was Dave. We actually mm-hmm. follow each other on Twitter now. I don't remember his last name. <laughs> <laughs> you, if, if we're talking about this, you haven't seen the episode... Go watch the episode. They say his name there. I'm sorry, I don't remember the last name, but that's that. It yeah. we just said it. It's fine. It's fine. Mm-hmm. But um, stuff like he talks about, you know, the very simple definition of testing of playing it until something breaks, and that's ad hoc testing. It's like, mm, you, de- depending on where you come from, if they have that bad an approach, then maybe. But usually, yeah. there's at least a bit of a plan because they then they then talk about you know maybe you're testing guns in a shooter game or making sure all the different character or enemy types work in an rpg or something you know you you're like even in a bad place you're going to get that much direction you know that right. that that I... definition of ad hoc is super loose and it's also not as rare as it's it's described there at least in the video games industry so I uh I like to get away from the term ad hoc and and part of the reason I do is because ad hoc sort of carries with it uh the the connotations that y- you weren't really trying to do anything you weren't really paying attention you weren't really you weren't really following a plan and I mean that's not true a good tester doesn't you know you can't just say I'm just going to try to run up walls today and then because if you're not paying attention to what goes on when you when you break a wall then you're never going to be able to recreate it. So it's not it's it's not just as simple as just ad hocing it. Now that's that's an official testing term. So uh, another bit of my background, uh, I actually am a certified tester with the uh, American Software Testing Quality Review Board. Interesting. I yeah, don't have so, any certifications myself, but yeah, this is it's actually very recent. I uh, I only just got it because uh, one of the things that we're trying to do in terms of contract work is sort of go out there and be able to get some existing testing work that might be out there and one of the quickest ways to sort of get yourself in the contracting world some some testing credibility is if you have a test team and x number of them are certified 
and then there's there's different levels of certification that that they're interested in having us get so that we have such and such people who are advanced and such and such people can work in classified systems and that those are all individual testing certs that you have to do but anyway so ad hoc testing tech it is it is it's it's a way of testing and in its most general trying to fit it in a seven minute video term yes it, it does qualify as what he described it as but I would say in, in when you actually where the rubber meets the road and especially on my teams I don't even like to use the term ad hoc because ad hoc just strikes me as um, you, you didn't really know what you were doing you were just kind of banging on it to see what happens and so I've taken the term off script testing which basically says don't follow a any given test plan go off script and make sure like the surrounding areas are are, are, are good you know you have you have the happy path so go off script and make sure that the non-happy path is is settled and yeah. so off script is is my own term that has absolutely no real meaning in the testing world but it's it's kind of more along the lines of what that would be doing and that i think that even has some benefit to the gaming world because that's a lot of what you're doing is so there's the path that you have to take to progress but as a tester you need to go off the path in order to do some testing and yeah i've also heard that same concept referred to as the golden path your intended user flow Mm -hmm. right um and that's one of the that's one of the fun things uh, fun both sincerely and in air quotes uh, about video game testing is that if you're working, depending on the exact nature of what you're working on in software, uh, you can simply say that this is the intended user path. Any unsupported user path, you don't have to test because that's an unsupported user path. That's user error, and that's something that, you know, if they don't know how to use it, nuts to them. That's like saying, oh, well, the car didn't go backwards when I lifted the gas pedal from its neutral resting position. Well, of course not. Yeah. That's not how you're supposed to use it. So right, but sometimes, and especially in in sort of in in the, in the commercial world and the contract world, you you're you're looking for gaps or things that are going to cause some unintended behavior because oh, sure. at the end of the day, the customer has to be the one that says, "Yeah, you did it." Mm-hmm. So and, I, and- I I put a, I put excessive importance on it. I actually uh, on my test teams, I mandate a minimum of. 10% of any given work week, whatever is dedicated. So if you're full-time, minimum four hours needs to be off-script testing in any given calendar week. Yeah. And in video games, I, I will usually call that uh, creative or destructive testing. And in video games, mm-hmm. because the nature of the system between the game itself and the player is somewhat inherently adversarial, um you want to try to get as much destructive testing in there as you can to check out any adversarial user path that you can find. That's yeah. and that and that's where a lot of the creative thinking comes in. You can't simply say because because I've also done stuff. I've been on a, a first person shooter game and it's actually one kind of one of the examples where it's like you get all the guns and make sure they go pew pew. I've actually done that. I've also checked to make sure that the muzzle flashes worked. The damage actually made sense. Um, stuff like, here's a shotgun. Well, it fires seven pellets. Each pellet does this much damage. It's an alt mm-hmm. fire. You can either fire it as a slug or with a spread. Does that modify the damage for each pellet? You know? And actually, this gets into one of those things where they, they, they said, you know, a tester can't have master level knowledge of all these different systems. And I actually put this out on Twitter and, and got into a bit of an exchange with, uh, with, uh, uh, the Dave who wrote the episode where I said, man, You'd really be surprised because all that stuff that I even just described about the shotgun 
and the spread and the amount of damage per pellet. None of that information was provided to me. I reverse engineered the whole thing and made sure all the numbers made sense. Oh, yeah. Oh, absolutely you would. Absolutely you would. I would say I may not be as well-versed in the specific code, Mm -hmm. um, but when it comes to system operation, I would say that I would expect me as a, as a test lead and my test team to have more system knowledge than the people who are building it because, oh, yeah. you know, it, first of all, you get to see the whole thing put together. You know, you, you get to see the, the, the constructed thing. You get all the stove pipes are all lined up now and you get to see it in operation far more often than any developer does. So exactly. my expectation is, is operationally speaking, you need, you as a tester know the system better than a developer ever could. Yeah. Very much so. I mean, that's that was one of the things. One place where I worked, I found a bug. Developers couldn't reproduce it because it involved doing something extraordinarily efficiently. It, like, it, it was it was a third-person action game where you could proceed with stealth um, with a silenced pistol. Never mind that silenced pistols don't work like this anyway. Yeah, but. <laughs> that's not, that's not that's, actually a real thing, but sure, yeah, video game logic. <laughs> <laughs> yes, you and I seem to know more about firearms, and I'm sure you know more than I do about firearms. I'd be surprised if you didn't know more about firearms <laughs> yeah, than I do. But kind of a nature of, of my old job, yeah. Yeah, um, but anyhow, that's a completely different topic. I mean, mm-hmm. it's kind of like our uh, Judge Dredd review where we pointed out, no, you do not keep your finger inside the trigger guard. No, God, you never do that. <laughs> but, um, okay, so in this game, uh, I was basically proceeding stealthy better than you would expect, like, um, uh, Leon, the professional, to go through, just, like, taking people out like like the wind, like a ghost or something. Because <laughs> mm-hmm. I, I just went in, never stopped. I knew exactly where to be to, you know, hit them in the head silently to go really fast, and if you did it this way, for some reason the AI had an opponent who had no line of sight to you, no line of sight to anything you did, somehow get aggro and just run down the hall at you. Yeah. And I got pulled over to one of the developers to demonstrate it for him, and I did, and he was was saying, wow, you know, I, I thought I'd be really good at this game because I spend all day making it, but and I turned to him and I said, yeah, but I spend all day every day playing it. <laughs> right. Oh, I, re- I remember there was at one point in time where uh, on the game that I worked, which was kind of like a, a first-person shooter slash flyer game, and they were talking about how long that they could last on the hardest, uh, on the hardest difficulty level. And what I, I replied to them, and they said, well, I have no idea how long I can last because it's only an eight-hour day. Oh, brutal. <laughs> and, and they look and like, how do you do it? And I, I start talking them through like, you know, the strategy and, and they look and they, they actually turn to each other and said, huh, we never even considered there was a strategy to that. <laughs> <laughs> no, no. Well, I mean, that's, that's one of the other things is you're talking about difficulty curves like that. There's a, there is a danger to listening too much to uh, your test team when it comes to tuning difficulty. Uh, yes. That was something <laughs> yeah. that in the Rogue Squadron games, in the Nintendo 64 uh, iteration of it, they made it way too difficult. And in the GameCube game, they had this neat thing with uh, director's commentary tracks on there. And uh, they pointed out that, no, they were listening too much to the test team because they said, this is too easy, make it harder. This is too easy, make it harder. And they didn't calibrate for the fact that these are people who've been playing it like 10 to 12 hours a day constantly. 
Yeah, no, I, yeah, I definitely, I, I tried to be cognizant of that more than yeah. once because, again, I, I, you put it on the highest difficulty level, the one that's you know the nightmare level that's supposed to kill your players, and I've I've never actually died in that because it's only an eight hour workday. So. <laughs> Yeah. yeah. So I I would have probably told him, hey, it's it's way too easy. However, I mean, if you if you haven't developed the strategies and you haven't played the game enough to be able to know like sort of how how some of the systems work and how how some of the the game mechanics can be can be employed to your advantage, then you know then you wouldn't know that. But like there was a lot of the times these guys were saying, oh well, you know, do you do you put all your upgrades in such and such? I think it was like extending the plasma cannon or something. I said, oh no. No, 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 no. That's that's a fool's game right there. <laughs> and, and so they're looking at me like, you don't do that? Like, oh, no, I don't even touch that. I don't touch the fusion cannon. Not at all. It's it's worthless. As soon as, as, soon as the you know the bigger enemies start coming, it's worthless. And you're going to wish you've had that points in the shotgun. <laughs> <laughs> always you know? the shotgun. Always it's the always shotgun. the shotgun. It, you, you extend the range and the power of the shotgun. And... And then you just use all of your resources to continue upgrading the shotgun, and that's that's how you do it. That's yeah. how you survive. And then you you basically you, you ground defenses. You, and it was there was some strategy to it, but it was it was something that where the developers just they hadn't given it the thought. Yeah, um, an, an example kind of along those lines. Another one for me is uh, uh, I was working on one game where you could have like these sort of power-up items that could affect all of your troops. It could just, like, modify some stat or, or another. And one of them would apply for tanks, and it would make their shots do more damage, but fire less often. So I said, okay, do these stack? <laughs> and I put two of them on, and the thing is, it was like it reduced your rate of fire by, like, 60%, and they were additive not multiplicative so it wasn't 60 percent of the remaining 40 percent it tried to like subtract 60 percent and then another flat 60 percent oh okay wow so it went negative which flipped over and it was firing like non-stop mm-hmm. so it, it the tanks were just like bah, 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 like it was supposed to be bam bam like that and then they were literally Make sure going you don't like, truncate silence on that little part right there. Otherwise, your point's going to be lost. Ooh, good point. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I'm probably going to forget that, but uh, we'll see. Yeah, oh, well, that's fine. <laughs> well, let's try it again. Bam! Bam! <laughs> so if the first one was too quick, then I was uh, lazy with yep. the editing, and uh, mm -hmm. uh, yep. that one gets it a bit better. But anyway, after putting in both of them, it was more like, pop, 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 like a machine gun or something, and it was just like wrecking everything. And no one had thought to try to, to, to uh, see what happens when you stacked these right. things. And I don't well, think that game, because I think ideally you weren't supposed to stack anything, and they never actually put a function in there to prevent that. Yeah. Well, you know what? This is why you have testers that are mm -hmm. actual testers who know what they're doing and, and not, you know, one of the things he described is, you know, you take any old person and you throw them at the game and you let them test for a while. And I'm sure he was speaking from personal experience. And that does sound like a really bad environment to work in. And oh, I, yeah. I'm even going to tell you from from the commercial and contracting side until quite recently, that's how they used to view testing is let's oh. just grab somebody and we'll have them test and they'll. They'll write up a test plan, and but they have you know they have no concept of what's supposed to go in a test plan or a test strategy, you know, or controlling a test environment. Like they they don't even know what those things are. They're just trying to sort of make it up as they go because they don't have any 
formalized testing training. And so you have the same thing. And so it's it's only been very recently that in the contracting world you have people like me who show up at the company and, and have a pedigree and, and have been working on this sort of thing and and know the ins and outs of the actual testing flow and, and how how you're supposed to try to work with the developers and and it's it's just it's insane to me that there would be something that people didn't know they didn't think like <laughs> hey testing's important we should get people who are good at it because yeah i mean it, it's something that yeah. i i think i've mentioned in other podcasts before in other articles it's like really early on in my career someone uh, came to me and it's like you have a computer science degree yeah yeah oh why don't you become an engineer it's like i, I don't want to become an engineer well you got to get out of testing sooner or later it's like no no i don't why, why I once, should i why should i have to i'm good at this <laughs> yeah i i so i once had, the, had a similar conversation where somebody said you know so what was your actual major in college is it oh it's a uh, computer engineering and so oh so you could be doing some of this development stuff if you wanted to and i said could you point out the operative words in that sentence that <laughs> <laughs> really might might alter what you were trying to say to me <laughs> If I wanted to, I, you know, I don't, I don't have any desire for that. Now, I didn't even choose this career. This career sort of chose me. I was, I was one of those guys who just got tossed at the testing solution. But the difference is, is that I did my homework to make sure I was doing it right. And that's when they kind of realized, huh, this is what happens when you have a dedicated tester who's testing. And, you know, we had a test manager who was really about trying to make sure people were getting experience and training up. Yeah. So we were able to make a case after after this project that I sort of just got tossed on. It was supposed to be a six-month temp assignment that, hey, why don't we keep these people around and me and the other folks were brought in and have a dedicated testing force? Mm-hmm. And so, you know, I've been doing that for the, you know, most of a decade right now. So, <laughs> <laughs> And that's, I mean, I think in in some ways you and I are a little similar that not exactly how we got into it, but, you know, it's it's – some of it is just our mindset, but that that to to kind of bring it back to the video, that's one of the things where you, you mentioned. They they talk about you know just throwing people at it, and you say that that's kind of sounds like it's from his experience. I've been in those situations too. I've been in you know I've been in a bulk interview where they route you through like cattle, almost literally, like going from station to station, and they have a, a binder of information for you, and they pass it to the next guy because they're interviewing hundreds of people. Like not necessarily the best. I mean, I can't exactly speak to it, but I've also talked with other people with a whole ton of experience where, you know, because of how many people they needed so quickly, they could not be picky. Mm-hmm. You get into those situations, depending on the size of your thing, how your workflow pipeline is managed and all kinds of other stuff that's outside of the testing. Like these decisions are made in ways that you have no control over. And if you're in a situation where it's like, OK, well, we've got 10 people in a month, we have to have 50 yeah, you know, <laughs> that's you, you. You are not going to as as somebody who has been down this road. You are not going to put an ad out there for experienced testers and get fifty replies. Y- yeah, well, here's, <laughs> I mean, you're not going well, to get fifty replies. You're not going to get fifty replies in your price range or who are good. I put out ads. <laughs> yeah. I put out ads for testing uh, for testers, and I get people who are expecting six figures. Which, oh, hey, that'd be yeah. nice, but uh, no, that's not what my entry-level testing, video game <laughs> testing position is going to pay. No. Uh, and I get people who, they're, 
they don't have a resume and their cover letter is I want to work in games or something like that. It's like, no, no. Yeah. It's like your that, whole that's... thing was one sentence yeah. that was both misspelled, has bad punctuation and bad grammar. No. I, I will say the nice thing about, you know, we're working where I do now and, and in that side of the, of the house is that we don't get the people who just uh, are wearing rose colored glasses and see it as like, oh, it'll be super fun to test because, yeah. you know, Video games carry the connotation of fun, even though testing them, is, as you can attest and I can attest to, that's a job. Oh, yeah. That is absolutely a job in, in every sense of the word. And, I mean, it's fun in the way that doing any job can be fun if, you know, you're, you're getting the flow and it's working and, and you're really jiving with it. But it's not fun the same way playing a video game is fun. Yeah. In fact, um, it can take away <laughs> from the fun of playing a video game. <laughs> yes, absolutely. But It's a bit like, it's <laughs> you know, a bit like the Cypress Hill song, Rock Superstar. It's a fun mm-hmm. job. It's still a job. It's still a job, yeah. And I, you don't get that sort of thing on the in the commercial side. You know, nobody's like, "Hey, I, I really just dreamed of testing weather tracking software." <laughs> 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 just that just doesn't happen as often, you know. <laughs> yeah, no. And there, and even in video games, there's a point where you know you you wind up being detached from the the testing of the game itself you know as a as a lead or a manager or a supervisor at some point you're not going to be the one doing the testing yourself and you have to actually you know force yourself to engage in your own products just so you know what they're doing Mm -hmm. um but i mean that's that's leadership and management there it just kind of comes with some of the territory yeah you know but um (laughs) yeah there's uh going back to the video Mm-hmm. Um, some of the other stuff that they talked about were automation and that's something I, this and the comment about, yeah, big testing pits are probably not going to be around forever. Um, that and leaning on automation, leaning on higher expertise in your testers, like all of this is going to go hand in hand and it's going to be a tough slog to get there because we still have a whole lot of. I mean, how you were saying, even in, in your sector, there's a lot of, um, you know, just kind of throw people at the problem and expect it to take care of itself. Oh, yeah. Um, it, very recently, within the last year, I actually heard a project leader say, well, to save money on testing, we'll just have the developers do a lot of unit testing. Oh. Yeah, yeah. I heard that. I heard that sentence. And I sat there and I, I said, I want to jump in, but I'm so busy right now with my own work. And so I had to say, like, not my circus, not my monkeys. But I did find somebody later and say, FYI, uh, I heard this was the plan. And this is a bad plan. Here's, so here, here's you want to intervene on this one. In any one of those situations, you can get, if you can just have one, one experienced tester on any team, any project, I don't care its scope, but if you're talking about having your your engineers do a bunch of unit testing, which don't, don't get us wrong. Unit testing is important. If you don't it's have unit testing, you important. Do, yeah. Yeah. If you don't have unit testing, then by the time it gets to QA, it's, 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 mm-hmm. <laughs> I've, 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 I've seen, seen a project where that happened. And let me tell you, it's a disaster because yeah. your, what happens is your test team now does your unit testing. Except and everything's so, opaque. So it's just like, this is broke. Okay, we're going to try to fix it. Still broke. Okay, we'll try to fix it. Still broke. Okay, we'll try to fix it. Still broke, dude. <laughs> yeah. And and so while your testers are doing that, hey, who's who's doing your integration testing? Yeah. Nobody. 
you don't have any because you're still you're still trying to unit test it. Yeah, well, or or you're trying to do unit testing on an integration testing level, which <laughs> yeah, which is that's highly just, inefficient. Yeah, that's that's the kindest words I could say. It's highly <laughs> inefficient. So for. Uh, to explain some of what we just said, like unit testing would be, okay, let's go and test this specific function. If engineers aren't verifying that their own specific functions are running, because in many, not all for sure, but in many testing environments, the testers themselves aren't going to be going in white box, which means, you know, access to the code and testing all of those individual functions. Instead, when all those functions come together and integrate with each other, then testers are going to be running the whole thing, kind of, you know, the whole pipeline beginning to end kind of stuff. So that that's what we're saying is the, mm -hmm. the, the engineers should be responsible for their own unit testing, but when things start coming together, then you need a tester who understands how the whole process is going to work, what the expected results are going to be, what the expected tolerances are going to be. Mm -hmm. And it, which kind of comes back to the, the uh, one of the early points is the tester actually does have to have some really detailed knowledge about the entire system functionality. Absolutely. And that happens in games and software, happens all over the place. And that is why you do need at least one. <laughs> Yeah, at least experienced one. Experienced <laughs> tester. That experienced tester can lead around, let's say, a dozen inexperienced people to do a lot of the, the I mean, for, for lack of a better word here, grunt work. Mm -hmm. And if they're good at it, they can take them doing that grunt work and level them up so that they can operate more autonomously and more efficiently mm -hmm. and more effectively and more happily, you know? Oh, yeah. We, I, I, I do that all the time because... Yeah. It's it's very hard to hire testers for the specific testing that you need because testing oh, yeah. is such a, a wide and varied uh, market and a wide and, and varied approach. So and also kind of niche. So you know. Oh yeah. Everything. Yeah. So and, it's, and on it's, top not, of that. it's not a wide. You, it, you, it's not a very wide net. And then it's so specialized into how certain areas need to test and what experience you're looking for that sometimes you're just you're it's better off to just get your experienced testers and then use them and try to grow from within and we've had great success with that because oh, yeah. you have somebody experienced who can identify and mentor the good testers and you grow them and then mm -hmm. you get more testers but you, you need somebody experienced there because without that then it, it's just it's it's not they're not testers they're just people that press computer keys <laughs> yeah the that's and that's the the monkey testing it's when you you cast mm -hmm. a wide net and 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 grab just people who aren't good at it that's when you get just huge huge uh bays of uh people doing unuseful inefficient monkey testing that that mm -hmm. just is undirected ad hoc or creative adversarial yep. testing incidentally just want to point out for the listeners that monkey testing is an actual testing term that's yes. Not a euphemism. <laughs> no, no. Monkey testing being kind of when you're just randomly hitting buttons. Yep. Yeah, you can actually find some good bugs that way. You you can absolutely you can. I've I can't tell you the number of bugs that we have found on systems just because it turns out that if you hit the enter key 68 times, it crashes. <laughs> and you're like, yeah, you know what? Yeah, that's a random thing. But at the same time, what if a user just sits there and decides to hit the enter button 68 times and then the system crashes? You're going to be glad we found that bug. The enter key is right there on the keyboard. 
They have yeah. ready access to it. And here's another, kind of bridging onto another topic that I've written about, but uh, Joel Spolsky and his Joel on Software blog once pointed out, like, um, bad excuses for not having QA. And, I mean, they're pretty much all right on the money. It's like, dude, no. One experienced QA tester is going to be worth way more than having engineers trying to test their own stuff. Mm. And, I mean... I, I think there's a bit of refinement and additions you can have to his thoughts, and, and I've written on that on, on uh, the Behind the Line article series. You can look that up, uh, listener, if you want to, on Enthusiacs.com. But uh, uh, suffice it to say, stuff like he told the story of um, someone he had testing uh, who was doing stuff like – I can't remember the specifics of it, but something like testing um, uh, specifics in submenus – and, and collision cases within. And it's something that you wouldn't necessarily think of if you're just trying to lay out functionality, but if you're actually going to have a testing mindset and say, okay, well, there's the golden path, making sure that each of the functions work, and then the adversarial path of going like another layer or two and seeing that everything works at the same time. You mm-hmm. know, what combinations can you come up with? And that's that in turn is why in the extra credits video they point out that there's a lot of detective work that goes in here, especially in a, a system as like the Joel Spolsky example was like with uh, Microsoft Excel or something I don't remember exactly, but uh, in a, a system as open and complicated as a video game, and make no mistake, many of them are very complicated and there are a hundred things that can go wrong at any given moment. Mm-hmm. And trying to figure, trying to get as close as you can to the exact thing that actually went wrong. Yeah, there's a lot of work that can go into the uh, finding the reproduction steps of an issue. But going again back to being an expert in the total systems, if you understand how everything works, you get so much better reproduction steps. And yeah. if you're a really good and experienced tester, you can kind of just hear something. You, you can probably overhear a couple. You've probably done this yourself, Greg. You overhear a couple testers talking about trying to figure out what's going on, and you can just say, "Try this," and that's it. Well, oh yeah, absolutely, I've done that. Yeah, yeah, and and so he he used an example, and so I'm just going to piggyback off of that, which is you know you jump over a fence, you shoot a guy at the foot, and then the game crashes. And so he starts going through all the different ways you try to test it. But in some ways, you can use your system knowledge. Like if, if you know, ba- based on your experience, based on your knowledge of the system, that that jumping over the fence could not have possibly caused that particular issue at that particular time, you get to skip that whole level of the troubleshooting and try mm-hmm. to hit the stuff that you think probably would be more likely to do it. So, you know, if I'm sitting there thinking, all right, you know what? There's been a lot of issues with foot, with foot shooting in this game. So if I had to point my finger at what probably did it, it was probably the foot shooting. So let me try to troubleshoot and isolate the foot shooting first, and then yeah. I'll worry about fences and stuff later. Yeah. Or but let's say, that's for good. example, yeah. Yeah, I, I can even flesh this out with some numbers uh, or pseudo numbers. Because let's say, similar to the, my example before where you have percentages, but they're adding instead of multiplying. Mm-hmm. So let's say with this weapon, it does one point of damage. Uh, let, let's try to do the numbers here. Two points of damage where the uh, location damage on the foot is half. So you get one half damage of two, that's one point. And let's say they're in a region of the map that you know limits the amount of damage that you do, and it reduces damage by a 
let's say, 50%. And now you're doing... And let's say it actually multiplies everything out and you're doing half a point of damage, but the system doesn't accept half points of damage. Or, it, let's say it does like four points of damage, a uh, foot reduces it by three points, and the area reduces it by two points, and now trying to shoot him in the foot actually heals him one point because there aren't any error checks, and now he's at over 100% health, and the game doesn't know how to handle it, and it crashes. Yep. <laughs> so. But, that's I mean, that's an experienced tester who, you know, has the system knowledge that a tester I would expect to have can probably have something like that happen and think to himself, I, I bet it has something to do with those numbers. Yep. And be able to isolate it a lot easier than, you know, worrying about trying to throw grenades over fences and stuff. I mean, I get the the example is fine because yeah. when you don't have that system knowledge, yes. It, the example they used where you're like, you're jumping over, like try, try is, the, is it the fence? Was it the gun? Was it the foot? Yeah, that's exactly what you have to do. And I have, I've been there. In fact, I think I told you, did I ever tell you the story of, uh, we found a we found a bug with a third party plugin, and it was because of the calendar date. Oh, you may have. It sounds familiar, but I don't remember any specifics. Yeah, it was it was we were using a third party plugin for a, for a piece of software, and in the middle of the acceptance test, um, all of a sudden the plugin just displays upside down. Yeah, yeah. you've mentioned that to me at one yeah. point. No, no idea why. No idea how it was going on. I mean, it, it is a giant flop in Twitch to try to figure out how we're going to fix this thing. And as it turns out, a a bug that was in that system and a bug that they were working on, it was in the release notes, but it's not the sort of thing you you know you really take a huge note on, is that uh, when whenever it's October 10th or whatever it was, uh, the program displays upside down and they don't know why. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, that's the sort of thing where you have you, you, you have to go through all of those routes. And in fact, to the point where while somebody is doing all that, somebody else is looking at release notes because that's, yeah, but you know, you don't, you don't always just be able to fall back on your knowledge. Sometimes you look and you're like, I, there are so many reasons why that should not be happening. (laughs) (laughs) There it is. It's a little bit like the line from Justice League Doom. I could push the earth out of the way. If I had a week, I couldn't explain all the reasons why that wouldn't work. (laughs) Uh yeah. So, yeah, the the example that they had was a little weird uh, to anybody who's who's got experience with testing, but it was, you know, relatable enough and general enough. I think it communicated the point well mm-hmm. enough. Yeah. And but I mean, kind of wrapping the whole thing up, well, maybe not wrapping up, but kind of circling around. The main thing that that I took exception to was was the whole, you know, master experience thing because I mean, no, we're not wiring the character model we're not uh, uh wrapping the the bump maps we're not coding the the network sockets you know we don't have that code level thing but if you want to look at someone who has the best knowledge of the product as a whole yes you talk to the testers mm-hmm. and if you don't you are a fool just as an example, um, in the contract world, you actually have to do what they refer to as an acceptance test for the customer. Mm-hmm. And you want to take a wild guess. Some of those in games. Yeah. <laughs> want to take a wild guess which team runs the acceptance test? The testing. Yeah. The team that can actually show the full system is the one who runs the acceptance test. Because if you put developers on it, they would only know their piece of the pie. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, now again, I, I I've been knocking developers an awful lot here, and just just want to point out, like they said, you it's not adversarial. 
you know, it, I can't step in and do a developer's job, period. If it, you just said, like, oh, we'll just have a bunch of testers and one developer, that's a super inefficient, ridiculous system. You you need the developers, and the developers are good at what they do because you give me a 100 years to sit down at the system and try to produce what the people, the experienced coders have been doing, I can't. Yeah. You know, it's, I, it, I, editors yeah. need writers, writers need editors. I mean, that's really... Yeah. But, I, you know, when it comes down to who's got full system knowledge, that's the test team. Yeah. And, and, and so when they sometimes, you know, I don't like, I take exception to the phrase monkey testing. And I, and I get that it's a real thing, but I don't like any term that implies that my job could be done by a monkey. Because, <laughs> On top of no. which, you can also yeah. get an automated system that will just generate random inputs. Mm-hmm. And there, there's a time and a place for automated systems. And there's a time where, you know, you, you need somebody who's got enough system knowledge that they, you need them physically looking at the system so that they can see things that an automated system might not catch. Yeah, and the, and that's the thing about the automated systems. They're not there to replace testing. What they're there to do is to do all of the dull, brain-dead, yeah. grindy stuff. If you can get a system to work to do that mm-hmm. um, in your particular environment, if you have the tools for it, or you're in a position in the business workflow where you can actually get what's needed to make that work... Um, Great. What it and what it's there for is now the testers get to focus on the fun and interesting stuff. Right. You get to try to, you know, steal from the game. And that's one of the interesting things about it too, is is almost like you kind of mentioned that you don't want it to be an adversarial relationship between the uh testers and the developers. And that's true in the professional sense. But in the workflow sense, there, there it is meant to be an adversarial relationship. And, and I, I got to be kind of careful with how I'm phrasing this mm-hmm. because it doesn't mean there's like hot feelings at each other. Yeah, there's or there's like no that. animosity. No, but. not at all. But we are serving different purposes. It's like, you know, a bunch of comics is like the, the engineers. How can I make it? And the testers, how can I break it? You know, mm-hmm. those two philosophies are at odds. And yeah. it's and, and that's fine. That's how it's supposed to work. And nothing, trust me, man, nothing makes testers happier than not finding bugs. <laughs> that's, uh, when that's, when that QA is, Reactions that, was a thing, I was submitting yeah. something to, I, I submitted one thing to it of uh, finding a block, a submission blocking bug on the release candidate. And it was a uh, uh, gif of uh, Professor Farnsworth on Futurama going, <laughs> oh, I made myself sad. <laughs> it's, that's absolutely true, though. I, yeah. I've, I've. I've said that before sometimes to people who, you know, it, it might have suggested, and not developers, but, like, some people might have suggested, like, you guys just like writing up bugs and failing the system. Like, no. You know how much work that is? That's <laughs> that's so much work, and sometimes I don't have time. You, you don't know. When, I, when I'm busy and I have so much stuff going on and, like, I have to write strategies and plans and I'm trying to multitask and I'm working on another contract proposal, and then all of a sudden I find a bug and I know it's going to take me the rest of the day to troubleshoot it and write up the bug report. Do you oh, think yeah. that makes me happy? Do you think I'm, ain't, I'm, ain't nothing slows down testing like finding bugs. Yeah. However, I mean, like, you're absolutely right. You're, you're By the very nature of your job, it's an adversarial goal. And I'm one of those guys, and I... I don't like to be one of these guys, but I I have my happy number of test cases that I like to fail. And so I've definitely like pulled the test team aside and said, listen, guys, you passed 95% of what you ran. They're good. They're not that good. <laughs> you, know, you know, go back there. The bugs are there. Find them so that we're not finding them in front of the customer. And, yeah. you know, I'm, I'm that guy. I'm the guy that says, like, listen, I expect you to I, I don't don't fail it just to make me happy. But 
if if you find yourself that you're failing less than 15% of what you run, really take a look at how you're running and whether or not you're doing an efficient use of your time and, and effectively doing your job because, you know, I, I get if it runs clean, it makes your life so much easier and you get to go home on time. Yeah. But we, we got at the end of the day, we have to find the bugs. Yeah. And get, get, the I mean, bugs we gets, find, yeah. That even gets to some of the philosophy and, and, and psychology behind testing and what is a problem because if you get a whole bunch of people who are just off the street then they'll say you know for a while some of them might get into it and just like try to write up a whole bunch of bugs and then after a while be like oh it's kind of the behavioral psychology or the behavioral um um, uh, economics of it it's easier for them to not write bugs Mm -hmm. you know so absolutely it is if they're not professional if they're untrained if they don't know what they're doing very well if they're not well led then you you won't you shouldn't expect them to write up as many or as high quality or as as serious bugs Mm -hmm. and that is why you know those big testing pits are not the way of the future i mean they're going to be around for a while but when you when you have to cast a wide net to get low quality people to fill all of the seats you're going to get a percentage that does that and trying to get yourself out of that position especially if you're let's say releasing major console titles on a cadence that centers around the holiday season yeah you're going to get this big wave in your test department and it's going to cause this problem because when you have to ramp up really sharp yeah you're going to get lower quality people in your department well, I, I don't mean to say that they're low-quality people, but that they are not well-suited to the job. Yeah. Or, are, or, they're, or they're there not... is not enough time and bandwidth to mentor them properly to have the best opportunity to succeed at the job. Exactly. Uh, okay. A couple other points that I wanted to make. Uh, they actually cited, like, oh, well, there's all these other ways to do things, and Valve doesn't even have any dedicated QA. Okay, everything I've ever heard about Valve says they are not a good example to build off of. I don't know why Valve works and why they make money, but, like, they don't have any leadership, and people just come in and work on what they find interesting that day. I'd be interested to just work for Valve one day to see how they work, but I wouldn't use them as an example. I I have a feeling that I wouldn't make it at Valve. (laughs) You know what? Like, you ever just get the idea, like, you'd walk in there and there's, like, there's no real leadership and suddenly you you just, you see the leadership vacuum and you're like, well, somebody's got to do it. Somebody's mm-hmm. somebody's got it. Next thing you know, you're walking up, going like, "I'm I'm just gonna be CEO now." Just, <laughs> somebody has to do this. All right, guys, just just go with me on this. Yeah, it, yeah. My whole point is, you know, if you're gonna raise up examples of alternative um, strategies for stuff, yeah, be really careful if you're looking at Valve. The, man, the, I. I, I can't even comprehend what it's like to work in in the Valve environment. What, what yeah. strikes me though is that it's got to be incredibly stressful for for people who are in the middle management, you know, realm. Because well, it sounds like they don't have middle management. But how does that work? I don't know. <laughs> I would. But this so is terrified. also why I'm we've like... got stuff like really slow to react to things on Steam and no Half Life Three, and they don't do episodic releases and. Like, what exactly are they working on? And nobody knows. And they say they're going to do this. And then that never materializes. And I mean, but eventually somebody's in charge, right? Because somebody, somebody's got to go tell the guys in the office and <laughs> what's what's happening. Somebody's gathering that information. Somebody's got to person... be paying the bills and the, the, yeah. the HR staff has to be doing it. It's like, there, there has to be a structure there somewhere. Right. So somebody has to put paperwork into payroll. 
Yeah. Somebody, somebody's doing that. I mean, that, that's that's almost an example of why 1984 doesn't work. Yeah, <laughs> I just, I just can't comprehend what it's like because I, I'm, I sit there and I imagine it as like this position where middle management just has no feeling of job security because the next thing you know, like your boss is going to decide he doesn't feel like working on that project anymore, and then your whole project gets dissolved, and you got to try to find another place to work. And maybe you could get, you're lucky to work in the company, but it's like one of those deals where then you start walking around to other, other projects and we're like, hey, you need you need some middle management. I got some middle management for you. You Need some middle management? Yeah. <laughs> you want to hit a middle management? First hit's free. First hit's free. Hmm? Yeah. You need a report. You need a daily status report. I can make daily status reports. I got reports. I I I, I can automate <laughs> the EOD for you. You like that? <laughs> I've done that. <laughs> Mm-hmm. Yeah, I can I can tie my end of date template in Excel directly into Outlook. All you have to do is hit this button. Nice, well done. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> this is okay. This is sounding weird and creepy. So let's move on. Yeah, we 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 took a weird turn there, but I stand <laughs> by it. Valve just seems like a really weird place to work. That's that's the effect that Valve has on us. Yeah. Yeah. Uh. So, to wrap up the whole testing thing, the episode, I think they, they hit a bunch of good stuff. Uh, they didn't quite hit everything, and my main bone to pick is with that whole expertise thing, because QA does have expertise in mm. the game, just of a different variety. Yeah. And also, when they show like the building with QA on it, and oh, it yeah, says Q&A. Oh, yeah, I pointed that one out, too. They said Q&A. Yeah, I looked, I'm like, what, what's Q&A? <laughs> what's that building that's not the building you need to be going into buddy you're in the wrong building <laughs> that's uh there's another episode where they had illegal dice i couldn't help but notice it and i feel like a real <laughs> ass when i noticed that stuff but they had dice that were presented that the opposite sides didn't add up to seven uh-oh yeah those no. are illegal dice yeah no you're gonna get drummed out of mohegan sun with those dice Oh yeah, you you gonna get your hand broke? <laughs> yeah, but I play with spin down dice. I don't care. <laughs> <laughs> I actually do have some spin down. Uh, Was it game science spin down d sixes? So instead of you know the opposite sides adding up to seven, it, it's always one turn away from the next incremental digit. So it, it, mm -hmm. you can go one, turn it 90 degrees, two, turn it 90 degrees, three, turn it 90 degrees, four, turn it 90 degrees, five, turn it 90 degrees, six. I like those. They're weird. No, I like the casino dice, man. I'm a classical man. Yeah. I also have not, a spin not that down I, Not that I ever played dice games at the casino, because one, I don't gamble anymore after, <laughs> after the incident. And two, because... Man, craps just seems random. I, I played craps once, and it's like, so throw the dice, and the guys are going to yell some stuff, and they're going to take all your money away. <laughs> <laughs> I, uh, I don't know what just happened, but I lost $400. <laughs> <laughs> uh, in the old Super NES game, Vegas Stakes, I always made all my money playing craps, but I'm pretty sure that... I never looked up the actual rules of craps, but I'm pretty sure that the, the Super NES game's rules didn't make sense because it was super reliable if you did a certain sequence. Mm-hmm. But I'm I'm pretty sure it kept chips on the table that were supposed to be taken away. Uh probably yeah. You know, gambling is is complicated, and it's meant to be complicated because they want you to just keep giving them money. Yeah. 
All right, so let's wrap a bow on that particular topic and get to Twitter questions. All right, what which, do we got? Yep, uh, I uh, we only scheduled this pretty late, so I only put out the call really late for questions, but we did get one. Uh, oh, super. Yeah, I believe uh, Tony from the No Time for Time Travel podcast asked, uh, what do you think about EA adding cosmetic microtransactions back into Battlefront 2? And uh, you sounded like you had a pretty... Um, pronounced opinion on this so why don't you take the first swing at it yeah so i'm i am what you would probably call in the jim sterling camp of i don't like microtransactions i don't want them in my games that i had to pay money to play free to play games that's different they 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 got to make the money somehow and i i i understand and i i've i've listened to your podcast enough times to know that that you have you have counter argument to this and i i get that intellectually that eventually you know like somebody's got to make the money on the game but at the same time you know I know you got to keep the lights on, and I know you got to keep the servers going. I do not like being inundated with, hey, you paid $60 for this game, and now if you pay a little bit more money, you can get some of these features of the game. It's like, I would, no. Then then charge me $100, but charge me what it takes for me to get all the content up front, because once you've already charged me money, I want the full thing then. And if, if you need to keep the servers on, then make it a subscription. I would rather, and I'm in the minority on that, I understand, but I would far rather just pay the subscription and get access to everything or at least have it reasonably unlocked through natural game progression rather than what these loot boxes are doing and what these microtransactions are doing and they drive me nuts i dislike them anytime i see a game that's charging me a normal full game price have microtransactions in there i don't care if it's just cosmetic i don't care if it doesn't really affect the game progression i don't like it and so Anytime a game adds microtransactions, even if they're even if they're docile microtransactions, even if they're not going to affect things, even the the most well reasoned of microtransactions, I'm going to be against them. And I'm I, I'm a pragmatic man. I understand that they're going to be there and that they're part of the the game. And some are are not as bad as others, but I don't have to say I support any of them. Mm. And so I don't. And I think I, I think there's fair reason for you know if I paid. Full price, what is conventionally understood to be full price for a game, then I should just have all the content. I mean, I think that's something you and I have experienced in, in you know, a bit later in the run of Guitar Hero. Was mm-hmm. it Guitar Hero? We might have been trying to play Guitar Hero 3 and tried to play co-op, and something like uh, a co-op required you to unlock all of the songs again. Oh, that's right. Yeah, because you you had to you could unlock them in the single player. Yeah, but if you wanted to co-op, you had to unlock them again in co-op. Which it, and so it basically started progression back to zero yeah. for us. So we just kind of stopped. <laughs> yep. Um, by the way, I still think Guitar Hero Rocks of the '80s was the best Guitar Hero song or Guitar Hero uh, uh, title because uh, that was the last one done by. Um, uh, harmonics but that said <clears throat> it when you think about it it's like okay or you know later games of ddr like okay i've done the whole progression thing before we're done with that now just give me all the goddamn songs <laughs> you know right. i want to I play all the songs i don't want to have any single player storyline progression any of this shit just give me the songs we all know how this works i don't need the rapping anymore just give me give me mm-hmm um, yeah, and for some of those party games, especially, yeah, you know, like I think um, Yahtzee from what was he on Screw Attack or The Escapist? The Escapist. Well, really, The Escapist is now just zero punctuation, but <laughs> yeah. But anyway, he, he once said like, "You you have 
you you have your party game, but you can't just pull it out of the box and, pl- and put it in because nothing's unlocked. So somebody's got to sit there and play single player and unlock it. And so that means one person gets to be better than everybody else yeah. when he brings it to the party. And that just makes it not fun for anybody. Yeah. So I bring all of that up because these are examples of misplaced progression barriers, progression walls, right? And you can look at it as either a progression wall or a paywall. And that's not necessarily to say that any given example should have either. Like, I paid for Dance Dance Revolution, there should be no wall, progression or paid. On the other hand, let's say, you know, Guitar Hero, they have packs of new songs. It, I think it's fair to have microtransactions for new songs. But that's also new content. Okay, so what do you think about, you know, say a cosmetic microtransaction? Uh, and there, I, in my conversation with Jason Kaler, uh, I pointed out the example of uh, Street Fighter 3, where you can either beat the game with every character on, like, five-star difficulty or higher, which is quite a slog, or you could pay two bucks, clear that progression barrier, and just get Gil. Because who doesn't want to play with Gil? He's a son of a bitch. <laughs> Right. And and I've I've heard you use this example, but then part of me in my head goes, but when when you make it so difficult, but then you dangle two dollars in front of me, that feels like they're saying, Do you really wanna beat all these guys or do you wanna just play as Gil? Yeah. Two dollars isn't a whole lot of money. Then it starts to feel a little slimy, like you set it up in such a way that the progression barrier is disproportionately higher than the pay barrier. And it feels like you're trying to get me to go down one path versus the other. But in this particular example, Street Fighter 3 Third Strike Console Edition, I believe, originally had that as an unlock with no pay option. And this was a re-released game. And so, hey, let's just throw something in there for the people who like it. And it was a fairly inexpensive game in the online edition anyway. So it was like 15 bucks. Here's two, and you can also get Gil at any time you want, you know? Mm-hmm. So, you know... When you're looking at all this stuff, there's a lot of stuff to take into account, some of which you can see is like, do you have an appetite for this? Do you think this is fair? Do you think this is reasonable? There's no concrete answer for that. Now, bringing it back to EA and cosmetic back microtransactions in Battlefront 2, one thing that I want to address on this, which isn't directly related, but the whole thing about pink Darth Vader or whatever, that example that came up, it's like, do people want to do that? And some people are like, yeah, I want to do that. Okay, here's one of the other things is that this is a licensed property, and that would also be subject to the licensor's approval, whatever you have available to you. So it might have been an example like people don't want that because they were told you are not allowed to do this. Mm-hmm. That is... A real thing not saying it's right not saying it's wrong i'm just saying that that is a consideration that has to be taken into account i've done i've i've been in stuff like that before where it's like oh well the functionality works fine but there's too many weapons available in this stage so we have to change what enemies are available because the character is not allowed to carry that many different guns can't pick up that great a variety of weaponry it was it was a licensor's requirement or blood mm-hmm. is or isn't allowed or whatever, you know? Right. Those considerations happen with licensed stuff. So that particular argument, sure, people could want Pink Darth Vader or whatever, but there's other stuff to take into account. If it's a wholly owned, directly owned thing, then fine. But when it comes to the financials of a game, again, this is a licensed title. 
I don't know how much money they put into it. I don't know what their licensing fees are. I don't know how much money that they lost on the, um, what, Yuma or whatever the code word was, code name was for the other one that they had to shutter, which, mm-hmm. by the way, I'm not pissed about because it sounded like a doomed project anyway. Oh, yeah, it sounded like a soup sandwich, yeah. yeah we, the, were, we were saved by it. We weren't, we weren't cheated out of it. Yeah. That's what I kind of felt. Yeah, and if you're, if you're going to be upset about, what was it, Amy Hennig? Uh, mm-hmm. Actually, now this frees her up to work on something else rather than be stuck in this development hell, okay? It's yeah. fine. It's fine. Um, <laughs> but that project is a loss. Okay, now is Battlefront 2 in a place where it has to recoup that loss? Because remember... Most video game projects fail, okay? So is there additional pressure from EA's executives to try to make the Star Wars investment working, you know? If that's the case, maybe there is pressure to try to squeeze some more out of Battlefront 2. And this is the point where when you're looking at the business side of things, I paid 60 bucks for a game, I shouldn't have to pay any more in microtransactions and our whole progression stuff aside. Okay, well, the business itself may be put in a position where it requires more out of this game than you can get from that premium thing because of other factors that are unrelated to this title and this project. Um, And there's actually a bunch of examples of this in uh, gaming where, you know, why did you expect this title to sell this much? It was never going to do that. Well, they expected it because they had no choice. It was either it sells this much or they go out of business. It didn't sell that much and they went out of business. Like mm-hmm. like THQ and the U-Draw. They were just so far in. They had to get more stuff. They they the, One of the only options they had was to bet harder on it and it failed. I mean, it was predictable, but yeah. And there's a question of, is that expectation fair? Is it fair for it to cause them to add more microtransactions into a game to try to monetize off of it more? I mean, that's kind of an open question, but if you at least understand that there are these additional factors that can weigh on the business side of things, you know, at least give that consideration its due, you know? It's a bit like, this is my favorite line in Star Trek, if we're going to be damned, let's be damned for what we really are. Yep. Um, and, and But you know, it doesn't mean I have to like them. Nope. <laughs> I would just ask that you recognize the reality of the situation. Now, I get there. There are realities beyond. As much as I would love to to be in the idealist and say they should never be microtractions for for anything ever, and the progression should be normal. I'm I well, I'm not going to pretend like some of these examples aren't just egregious and money grabs because a lot of them are. Yeah, but, and and stuff like Dungeon Keeper was just really poorly designed. Yeah, the 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 game economy, the friction curve is just bad. Um. And, yes. But but there's also there's also design philosophy that's emerging for some some of these things, like microtransact in in mobile free to play, it is a reasonably well accepted philosophy that anything that you can pay for you should be able to get for free eventually. It may take mm-hmm. you a really long time, but you should eventually be able to get there. Now, microtransactions in Battlefront 2 for cosmetics, maybe you do something like, you know, once a month you get a token for a cosmetic pack or something like that. A little bit like uh, uh, respects were in um, uh, City of Heroes, you know, every so often you just kind of got one. 
mm-hmm. uh, because of various things. You know, they rebalanced. Here's a respec because we might have screwed with your character build. That's fair. Mm-hmm. You know, is is that something that's going to go into these uh, uh, microtransactions in uh, uh, premium games? Maybe, maybe not. Um, but I think that that is a good design philosophy. Anything that you can pay for, you should be able to get for free. A little, again, going back to the Gill example, I didn't pay for it. I got it for free. It took some effort and it took some time, but I got it for free. It, it, it's a little bit like, uh, you know, on-disc... D- uh, not the same, but a little bit like the example, uh, the argument about on-disc DLC. Uh, should We bought it, shouldn't we already have access to it or something like that? Well, maybe you can you know, keep playing and, you know, get these achievements or something, and then it unlocks for you, you know? Yeah. But we we also live in a world where a lot of times the idea is, why give them something for free when you can charge them for it? Yeah, and that's... And and, and the, the line between the two is not always clear. No. And, again... You know, we're talking about EA, and we all know EA has has money. And then you, you know, the arg- argument about is, does one Star Wars project have to make up for another Star Wars project, or could you say, dude, look how much money they make on FIFA? Do they have to worry about it? Or you know, <laughs> man, FIFA is just like a license to print money. Yeah. Um, but I, you know, that at the same time, if you put a dollar into Star Wars, you get a buck fifty back. You put a dollar into FIFA, you get three back. What do you put money in? Well, okay, that puts right. a different kind of pressure onto your Star Wars project to, to make money. You know? Uh-huh. It, yeah, it's it, it it's tricky. And, and sometimes you just have to come out and say, listen, I'm the consumer. So I understand you're going to try. You, you need to make money. Business got a business. I'm, I'm jumping on your line there. Fair enough. You know, somebody's got to keep the servers open. You you need to have an, an, a steady income to do it, and you are trying different things. All right, I'm the consumer. I don't I don't have to I don't have to buy your game. Because yeah. some, something I have learned in the commercial world, as that's where I work, is uh, sometimes if you build it, they don't necessarily come. <laughs> uh, that is true. Well, that's the yeah. other thing is like a lot of people. Th- fall into this fallacy of you know you make a good game and you, your audience will find it like no no they you, won't you have provided them no means to know that it exists yeah, advertising is, is and user acquisition you a sacrifice? Is, important. is that even profitable yet i'm sorry what i was i was gonna say so you, you know there's the whole idea that people will find your good game but i mean let's look at hellblade sinuous sacrifice i think i got that title right close enough close enough i was probably 70 percent there <laughs> <laughs> um that game is phenomenal. It was it was popular for a, a couple of weeks, and then you know the next releases came, and it's the visual cycle in the world of video games is short. It is super short. Well, you know you you only, you only get to be in in the front for so long, and like so, okay. So what happens to that game? They only got that short little cycle of of time in the spotlight, and. Despite the fact that it is probably one of the best games, if not the best game that came out last year, I don't even think they've turned a profit on it yet. I think they have. Have they? Yeah, but it's it's one of those things where it's like they weren't sure if they would. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, at the same time, it does it. You know, I think uh, it's sort of bringing things to a close here and wrapping it up. This is. Uh, uh, they are nominated for uh, uh, some GDC awards. As, as well they should be. Yeah. Uh, best audio. Well, that certainly makes sense. 
Yeah. Um, anything else here? I'm scrolling through the list really quick. Uh, best narrative. Mm-hmm. Best technology. Best VR AR game, Star Trek Bridge Crew, that freaking Artemis Bridge Simulator ripoff. Ah. <laughs> yeah, I don't, I don't, I don't do VR AR. <laughs> that reminds me too much of military training. Like, yeah. Nope, 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 nope. Yeah, those are those seem to be what it's nominated for. It might be in the uh, uh, um, Independent uh, Game Awards too. Yeah, but I don't have those in front of me. Mm-hmm. Um. Yeah, uh, I think we've covered this question pretty well. There is no cut and dry answer. Business is a bit murky, and uh, we mm. don't have access to all of the numbers involved. And you know, it's a developing question about you know design philosophy and design ethics that go into answering some of these questions. But mm. if you don't like it, that's absolutely your right as a customer. That's what I think. Yeah, that's that's where I stand. I don't like it, and I'm not going to support it, and I'm not going to be a part of it because it, you make so much money. And if, and again, yeah, we don't know the numbers. You know, I I'm presuming they make so much money because you know EA doesn't do this out of the kindness of their hearts. Mm-hmm. We we'd like to think they do. They would like us to believe they do. But at the end of the day, you know, it, it's about people need to eat food and to eat food you need to make money and some some people at ea eat more food than others <laughs> but it's it, it, it's a business and there needs to be a profit line in and so we don't know how that 60 dollars relates in but i will say that it probably relates a lot they probably are making more off the game sales than they would like you to believe they are mm. You know, certainly, you know, when you look at what they've told their shareholders, they basically said like, "Oh, well, the transactions it w- it wasn't a big effect on the profitability of the game." Well, was it, or are you, you know, you're trying to you're trying to sniff out where the BS is because yeah. it's somewhere in there. And and that's and, and that's one of the other things is, is if you're doing microtransactions and you're burning up good customer sentiment, you know, how does that? <laughs> yeah. there, there is a currency to your public perception as well. And if you're just going to mm-hmm. keep pissing off your users, eventually they'll leave, no matter how addicted they are to your product. Yeah, but for whatever reason, and I don't get how EA keeps getting away with this, they gamers hate EA and keep buying EA games. Like, and I listen. I'm not. I'm not trying to lump all gamers together. I'm saying specifically, I know gamers that hate EA games but will buy EA games. <laughs> And so I have to think, well, then why should EA care what you think? Yeah. You've just demonstrated that, uh, EA, you make me so mad. There is no forgiving this. Here's my money. Yeah. Well, I mean, you, what what speaks louder, your chatter or your money? Yeah. Your chatter or your chatter? Mm-hmm. Listen, I, I don't I don't chatter about, like, this is, other than, you know, your show where I get to come in and answer questions like this, I don't sit here and harp on microtransactions. Yeah. But I also, I don't buy games that that have them in them. Uh, because I've I've seen some pretty egregious examples, and w- one one thing I think that you can't even justify to me sometimes is microtransactions for content to use in the single player experience exclusively. Mm. And I've played games like that where oh you want to buy this gun's only a dollar, <laughs> and you get those prompts like in game while you're trying to like progress through the single player story. I think that's that's kind of aggressive and sleazy. 
Okay. That 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 brought up one thing that I think should be our final point on this though. Is, okay. Is um, just to also, it's important to look at these things honestly because I remember when Dead Space Three came out and had cosmetic microtransactions, and people were saying, "Oh, to get everything in the game, you have to spend like this absurd amount of money, right?" But mm-hmm. it was like a one dollar microtransaction for each cosmetic option, and there were several hundred cosmetic options. So mm-hmm. no reasonable person is going to buy everything. That is an intellectually dishonest argument. Yeah, now, that doesn't and that there, doesn't there are doing certain, that thing was yeah. right to do, but if you're going to argue about it, do it in an honest way. Mm-hmm. And so there are. I'm going to I'm going to throw out one example, and then maybe this might be your final thought. <laughs> we'll get there. We will eventually have a final thought. Um, I'm I'm going to reference Mass Effect 3's multiplayer, and so here's here's an interesting thing because with multiplayers, you always have to keep in mind that at some point in time, somebody's got to keep the lights going because those are servers. Servers cost money. That's that's how Battlefront has to deal with this sort of thing. Um, I can say that you know it's a different deal with multiplayer in a game like Microsoft, where the single player is really what what's putting gamers behind the controllers and then the multiplayer is kind of supposed to just trying to keep the the value going but anyway that's neither here nor there and i'm i'm now going down a road of business analyzing that i have no (laughs) business going down but there are instances where you know you have you have the random drop loot crates which i absolutely despise because if you're at least going to charge me money let me buy what i want and if if it's one of those deals where this is what's actually keeping it going, you know, this is this is what you have to do, then I cannot in any circumstance justify a loot crate. If you need to charge me to keep the lights going and I'm pragmatic enough to understand that this is an instance where I might have to suffer through microtransactions, do not make my microtransaction a loot box where I might get the thing I want. Mm-hmm. If you're going to charge me, let me buy the thing I want. Yeah. I, yeah, the loot box thing, as a user, I find weird. I don't, I, I, I have no defenses to offer on that one. Yeah, I, I mean, I, I get from the business standpoint as well, then people will have to keep playing and, and keep buying and, and keep getting the loot boxes because they might not get what they want. And like, so how do you justify maybe not giving the player what they want in order to get them to keep spending money? And... And and that honestly, at some point at time, I have to say, well, where where does where does this actually where does the fault lie? Is mm-hmm. it with the company that's doing the thing that they know will make the money, or is it with the consumers that will complain but still pay the money? Well, uh, if you want to hear more thoughts about the business implications of loot boxes, you can listen to a couple episodes on Behind the Line Radio when I had Jason Kaler on, and we discussed this mm-hmm. in pretty yeah, good very detail. Good episode. Yeah, yeah, and and stuff like you know PVP balancing and all kinds of stuff. So mm-hmm. it, that one yeah. that one's a good one. Go back and check it. Yeah, I don't we remember have, the number have, off the top we, of my head. It's about two episodes ago. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So we've we've retread over over some of that territory enough. So yeah, I'm I'm done making points now because we just can't keep doing this all night. <laughs> and <laughs> and on top of that, I think for the war story segment, we've already given like two each this episode. <laughs> so I'm sure we have. I, yeah, I, yeah. I don't feel we need to go to that well again. So um, I think that'll be it for us for today. Um, Hopefully we'll have the uh, next episode of Enthusiast Wrestle Gaming Championship up sometime soon. Uh, Greg, good luck in your next title defense. Thank you. <laughs> and uh, if then thank you to NTFTT Pod for the question. Uh, and if there's anything you'd like to see me write about on the behind the line 
article series or hear us talk about here on Behind the Line Radio, you can always reach out to me at uh, kinetic at enthusiacs.com or reach out to me on Twitter at kinetic knows. I try to be reasonably responsive on there. I've actually, I don't know if you've seen this, Greg. I started doing this uh, Simpsons Star Trek thing. I have seen that, yes. Yeah, that one's, I, I had to start that one. I, I've been going through the original series lately, and there was one episode, The Deadly Years, where, you know, they're they're just aging really rapidly. And you see these two, this couple that are in their 70s, like, oh, I'm 29. Oh, I'm 27. And it just made me, it, it so powerfully made me think of the alcoholic uh, uh, the the alcohol uh, the Homer tries to give up alcohol episode of The Simpsons where Hans Molman goes up and says alcohol has ruined my life I'm 31 years old and then <laughs> then it was just kind of off to the races <laughs> mm-hmm. so and so thank you to Frankieak for providing all of the gifs for that so oh yeah I still got to put one up for today so <laughs> I thought you did one today no I did one yesterday oh okay I might just be behind yeah well anyway. Thanks for joining me, Judge Greg. No problem. Fun to be here. Fun to talk the craft. Yep, and thank you, everyone, for listening. See y'all next time. Bye-bye. Behind the Line Radio is presented by Enthusiacs.com. For more podcasts, Let's Plays, articles, videos, reviews, and more, visit us at Enthusiacs.com. Also, send us a comment on Twitter, at Enthusiacs. View us on YouTube, channel Enthusiacs, and like us on Facebook, Enthusiacs.